Hi, everybody. My name is Greg Hancock, and along with my time-warped friend, Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the highly irrelevant. In today's episode, we talk about a variety of models for assessing the co-development of variables over time, including key issues for researchers to think about as they embark upon longitudinal research. Along the way, we also mention Antissa, Hot Tub Time Machine, Chipmunks, Garbage Disposals, Digging Up John Stuart Mill, Whiteboard Problems, Cats and Laser Pointers, Roz from Monsters, Inc. That's right, she's back. 3D Dinosaur Posters, Licking a Hot Burner, 30th Place Ribbons, and Haitian. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. I feel like I know a lot about you now that we have been like 38 episodes deep. I'm not exactly sure. What I don't know about you, what movie have you seen more than any other movie? I have a really low tolerance for watching the same movie twice. It drives my wife nuts because Mm. she likes watching things multiple times. Uh And so we'll say, hey, do you want to watch something on Netflix? And then we can't decide on anything because I say, no, I've seen that. I've seen that. I've seen that. Mm -hmm. If I watch Dirty Dancing one more time, (laughs) I really am just going to join the circus and never come back. Nobody puts baby in a corner. I would say of any movie I've watched the most over my life, it would be Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Oh, excellent choice. Are you suggesting coconuts migrate? (laughs) Our kids watched that movie and they understood so much more about me after they watched it, right? (laughs) (laughs) So I will tell you, there is a movie that I have seen more times than you and I have fingers and toes combined. I bet you could never guess what movie that is. Dirty Dancing. <laughs> nobody puts baby in a cage. <laughs> nobody nobody names their daughter baby. <laughs> so I'll give you a hint what it is. I have seen it in a theater more times than we have fingers and toes. Rocky Horror Picture Show. You are good. I didn't even have to go to my next layer of hints. Come on, dude. I went to college, too. Is the midnight showing of Rocky Horror? Absolutely. You dressed up, didn't you? I did not. (laughs) But you went. You got up and danced the time warp. I did. Good for you. There was a few years ago, I thought this was the best on Twitter. Some guy posted a tweet under the name of Frank Furter. (laughs) Um, that said I see you shiver with Antissa and just left it at that and then Uh five years later to the day the only other post was Patient (laughs) I see you shiver with Antissa Patient That is commitment to your art. I think about that movie a lot, which is weird, but because you and I do a lot of stuff in the longitudinal realm, I have a lot of soundtracks that just play in the back of my mind when I'm doing things. I think it might be a disorder. (laughs) (laughs) But the song Let's Do the Time Warp Again comes up in my head a lot when I think about longitudinal work because of the components of time, the challenges of time, and all of that. I don't know if any of that resonates with you and your psychopathies. We have shared psychopathies, I think, that probably drew us together in the first place. The whole assorted of mating, right? <laughs> yeah, we'll puzzle through that with it our therapist later. <laughs> I know Rocky Horror. I saw it. I was not an aficionado. I do not know the song lyrics. Although I can do a lot of those for the spaghetti western. Fistful of dollars for a few dollars more, the good, bad, and the ugly. That's my variant of Rocky Horror. Now, admittedly, Mm -hmm. there's very little drag and there's very little spontaneous singing Uh in the good, the bad, and the ugly. (laughs) Not enough, in my opinion. Um, (laughs) It's just a jump to the left. I don't think it's nice you laughing. See, my mule don't like people laughing. It's the crazy idea you're laughing at him. (laughs) (laughs) But the passage of time I find fascinating. I think about it a lot, not only just in research, but in just day-to-day stuff. It is fun to think about. I remember as a kid being just so overwhelmed 
by looking at the stars and when my dad told me for the first time that you're looking back in history, right? Mm -hmm. Because the photons that you look at when you look at the stars, many of them left 10,000 years ago, 20,000 years ago. Many of them left when dinosaurs Mm -hmm. roamed and there are quasars out there, but the quasar is not there anymore, Mm -hmm. right? We're seeing things that don't exist. I just find that cool. It's extremely powerful. And there's a little piece of me that wonders if our fascination with time from an analytical standpoint is at all driven by these little latent fascinations that we have as kids. I'm exactly the same way there. One of my favorite genres of movies is time travel movies, ones where they completely mess with how the past affects the future, which affects the past. All of that stuff I just love the mind-bending nature of. So it makes me wonder if we're drawn to these kinds of things at all because of that kind of affection for stuff. So really our entire career is based on Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. <laughs> That's a really good choice. No way. Yes way. Excellent. We have committed this season to not agree with each other so much and I will take my first exception is sure. I don't like the time travel movies. What? Because I watch too many war movies where there would be a spray of machine gun fire and my dad would say, oh, they would have hit somebody with that. Or did you ever notice they never reload their guns? It's like a magic gun that never runs out of bullets. My dad was like the quintessential realist. Uh-huh. On that, and I picked up from him going around the earth really fast to turn back time so you can get two whales and bring it forward. That I never got. Admiral, there'll be whales here. <laughs> what my time travel more is, is sitting on the edge of the Grand Canyon mm-hmm. and saying, This has been here. Mm hmm. For however million years, to me, that's that looking back in time, Mm -hmm. not a DeLorean or a phone booth. What about a hot tub time machine? Totally. Oh, my God. That is one of my favorite movies. Okay, I stand corrected. The hot tub time machine. Do I really got to be that that says we got in this thing and went back in time? It must be some kind of hot tub time machine. All right, so we're back to agreeing again. (laughs) Well, you know, last week, and this all ties together just beautifully. (laughs) (laughs) Does it? Because I'm not seeing it. Well, you know, last week we outsourced our job to eight people. And the last couple of people, especially the last one, Johnny Felt, talked a bit about longitudinal models. And as you pointed out, it seems kind of funny that we did a whole season of a podcast and didn't really address longitudinal models in any way. And so this talk about time, this talk about things happening in the past, still being around in the future, all of that really seems to be a reasonable thing for us to just hunker down and talk about. I do find it fascinating to think about how do you map numbers in some principled way to understand these influences and these effects. In my read of things, there is just a nonstop interest in trying to understand how variables relate over time. I mean, you know, if I had to categorize the questions that came to me from colleagues around campus and well beyond campus, that would be a theme for the vast majority of them, that people just want to understand how things usually from year to year relate to each other, affect each other, whether in a panel sense or whether in an actor-partner interdependence model kind of sense. They really want to know about things that they loosely use words around like persistence and stability, and they don't quite know exactly what they mean by those things, but that is far and away the theme that guides the majority of things that wander into my office. I completely agree. I think this is the foundation of everything we do. And I might say that people aren't spectacularly good at it. There's a mismatch between what they think their research question is, what the processes they think they're interested in, and then ultimately the way that they think they should be analyzing their data. And it is our fault as a field of quantitative methodology, because if you take six papers Mm -hmm. that definitively offer guidance in how one should analyze longitudinal data, Mm -hmm. you can get six diametrically opposed recommendations. 
there is no general consensus, I think, at the highest level of methodology. Mm-hmm. I think this is on us. It goes all the way back, Kronbach and Furby, mm-hmm. where the punchline is never use raw change score. There are all these problems. Everything is addressed by residuals. And then John Willett, who I think is one of the titans in the field, Mm -hmm. he has an equally unambiguous statement that he doesn't know what a residualized change score is. He doesn't understand what it represents. He doesn't understand how it captures, and it should never be used. Mm -hmm. And so you have two of the titans in the field saying, never use raw change, always use residual. And the other guy says, never use residual, always use raw. Mm -hmm. And then what's really interesting is, We're off to the races in the last 20 years with all of these different kind of panel model, growth model, change score models. Every one of them is either raw score change based or residualized change based. The vitriol with which people seem Mm. to lock into their positions for me, you know, with all due respect, isn't really necessary, right? I'm not an all or nothing kind of person. For me, I'm I'm on a spectrum. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you are. (laughs) Yeah. For me, you know, there's this sort of continuum of models that we can think about. And folks just have to try to really clarify what they're interested in to start. And I think as you and I have talked about it in the past, it has a lot with con- uh, the contextual effects that people are interested in, what their frame of reference is for understanding people's individual performance, and maybe we should start with some of those kinds of issues. I agree, because I think a core issue at hand is an irrational belief in temporal precedence. Mm-hmm. That if you have something that precedes something else, then that's a cause of it. So we'll go out back, dig up John Stuart Mill. Mm-hmm. Did you know he's buried in my backyard? A lot of people don't know that. Really? So we're going to dig up John Stuart Mill. Three core conditions for inferring causality mm-hmm. is the cause has to precede the effect. The cause has to be demonstrably related to the effect. And then the third one is why our job is so much fun. Mm-hmm. Is there no plausible alternatives? But I think so much of our field is, well, I measured anxiety at time one and alcohol use at time two. So clearly mm-hmm. there's temporal precedence and I'm going to infer some causal relation on that. Yeah. And I think what we find after about three minutes of thinking about that is that's the bare minimum condition that we have to bring to bear, is having some temporal precedence. My opinion is, yes, we need temporal precedence. The core that longitudinal data gives us is at least the ability to talk about within and between differences in components of change over time. And that requires people to be able to think about what they actually care about, you know, in this within-between decomposition. The challenge is understanding at what level their question actually exists. And I would say that their question usually exists at one particular level, and the type of model that they do might be at an entirely different level. I think there's a big mismatch. Maybe we should unpack the within-between problem a little bit more. I think it radiates throughout everything that we do Mm -hmm. because it arises in longitudinal data, but of course, more classically, it manifests in grouped data as well. The notion of context Mm -hmm. and defining an individual score with respect to some other unit. Let me introduce, if I may, the advanced mathematical statistical concept that we have to navigate is... For a. For a. Okay. For a. <laughs> that is huge for a chipmunk. Uh huh. Right? <laughs> now, I could still pick it up and stuff it in a garbage disposal. <laughs> no chipmunks were harmed in the making of this episode. For a chipmunk, <laughs> that is huge. Uh huh. That's great gas mileage Uh for an SUV. Everything is Uh fora. And as soon as you get the notion of fora, Mm -hmm. things start getting really interesting. 
this is absolutely the crux of the issue, right? And when we talk about multi-level models, not longitudinal models per se, I think the bifurcation of within and between maybe is a little bit clearer because our grouping units are classrooms or, you know, different age groups, etc. When we switch to longitudinal, somehow people have a harder time thinking about within between, thinking about frames of reference, thinking about the for a that they actually want. The problem is moving to say, am I more anxious today than I usually am? Mm -hmm. If you ask my anxiety morning, noon, and evening for seven days, Mm -hmm. I'm going to have some overall level of anxiety. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have some average level that's a characteristic of me. Am I an anxious person? Am I a less anxious person? But within those set of 21 measures, on some days, I'm more anxious than I usually am. And on some days, I'm less anxious than I usually am. That's the same within between. I might have a day where my anxiety score is five, and you might have a day where your anxiety score is five. Mm -hmm. But that's higher than you usually are. But it's lower than I usually am. So the meaning of those five varies as a function of what is typical for me as a person. And so the trick is, in part, knowing what you mean by being high and low for starters, and then figuring out what you think is the ultimately the causal agent or the mechanism or the process that's operating. Is it the fact that you are low relative to other people that is maybe driving what's going on? Or is it the fact that you are low relative to yourself? And I think this is where people get a little bit confused in terms of the models they choose, what they represent. Because it would seem to me that most often the kinds of models that people articulate about change and about the interrelations of variables across time most of the ways that people think seem to be using people as their own frame of reference, as the driving force. And yet the models that they choose really might be looking at the other, right? Might be looking at a frame of reference of individuals relative to some larger group. And disentangling that is the conversation that comes up very, very often with people. And I think in part, that's the fault of theory. Mm -hmm. Most of our theories fundamentally suck. (laughs) The reason is our theories don't offer guidance to the level of specificity that our models demand. Mm -hmm. We have a theory that says if you're elevated in anxiety, you tend to drink more because there's a self-medication component Mm -hmm. where you feel bad, you ingest ethanol, and it reduces those bad feelings. So earlier anxiety leads to later alcohol use. Well, at what level mm-hmm. do more anxious people tend to drink more? Or if you're more anxious than you usually are, do you drink more than you usually do? Mm-hmm. Well, those are two fundamentally different components of stability and change over time, but our theory doesn't guide us in that. I feel like there's an opportunity with these increasingly sophisticated statistical models to take a step back and to say, well, what do I mean when I say earlier anxiety predicts later depression? Mm -hmm. What is the nature of that change? These are often complementary. You don't have to pick one or the other. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think you can articulate a between-person component and you can articulate a within-person. Because the real tricky thing is they can sometimes work in opposite directions. Imagine you have a between-person hypothesis about the relation between anxiety and substance use. Mm -hmm. On average, people who are more anxious tend to drink more, Uh all right, in adolescence, let's say. And there's the self-medication. But what you could find is for a given adolescent, if they're elevated in anxiety at a particular time point, they're actually less likely to drink. And the hypothesized effect is if you're elevated in anxiety, you're less likely to go out and put yourself in a peer group setting. Mm -hmm. And in adolescence, that's the primary source of availability for drugs and alcohol. And so you get a reversed effect. Mm -hmm. On average, an anxious person tends to drink more, but on a day that you're more anxious, you actually tend to drink less because you're not putting yourself in a substance-using environment. And that thinking that you just did 
is more thinking than a lot of the people do who come into my office because they haven't really thought about what it means to be high on something or low on something and what the driving mechanism really is. And I think we need to give a lot more sensitivity to that. You have used the nice phrase before that this is a whiteboard problem, that if you imagine the board in your office, do you remember when you had an office and you had a whiteboard in your office and, oh, Uh, yeah, the good old days. But if you had a number of variables over time, five variables over time, two different variables, in your cases, you described uh, depression and alcohol consumption, and you laid those two variables out across five time points, and you picked up the wrong marker, right? You used the permanent marker, put it on your whiteboard. It's not, it's not going anywhere, <laughs> which people have a habit of doing in the classrooms that I am assigned to teach in. Those are hard-coded onto your board. And now you have to figure out what is the model that's going to go around it. And what most people will do when they come into my office, if you put a pair of variables trailing from left to right over time, what most people will do will just do some crisscrossy arrows and say, that's what I want to do. And they haven't fully thought out for themselves what it means to be high on depression, what it means to be low on alcohol consumption. It's always back to the four a. Uh, High for a what? Low for a what? The whiteboard problem is fundamental to everything we do, not just longitudinal. We all have the same M by P data matrix, and all of these models, some that are compared and contrasted in more good-natured ways, and some you use the word vitriolic, and I think that's absolutely the case. I really am becoming exhausted by the entire discussion. Mm -hmm. I don't see it helpful Picture in your mind's eye five rectangles across the whiteboard horizontally in a row that represent five repeated measures of anxiety. Mm -hmm. And below that are a parallel line of five rectangles that represent substance use. Mm -hmm. And that's our N by P data matrix. Every model that's out there simply allows each of us to walk up and draw different single-headed arrows, different double-headed arrows, and different circles. Mm-hmm. that relate these variables to one another. I don't like yours, so I erase it and I draw another one. Person X doesn't like mine, and they erase it and draw another one. They're all just different representations of the data space, mm-hmm. of a multidimensional system that we're trying to impose some kind of simplification on. And I'm getting increasingly frustrated with the emperor has no clothes this model is doing this and not that and this is doing the other and you should never use this you should always use this they're just freaking arrows and circles maybe we could progress through some of the models and think about what kinds of things those models are doing to help people figure out what zone maybe they're in and i don't like to say what model is the one they should be using and what models they shouldn't be using But what kinds of thought processes should be going on as they get up to the board and maybe draw different systems? I agree. A model is not good or bad in its own right. They're not incorrect models or correct models. The relative utility of a given modeling strategy depends on what use it's being Mm -hmm. invoked for. And what that does is it brings us back to theory. Mm -hmm. Bauer and I wrote a paper back in 2011 in Annual Review of Psychology where we tried to puzzle through this a bit. We argue in that paper that most theories at their core, whether it be implicit or explicit, denote Mm within-person effects. That if you use this curriculum, a child will improve their reading ability more than they would have without the curriculum. Mm -hmm. If an individual is more depressed, they will drink to self-medicate that feeling of depression. Almost all theories are written at the individual level, yet almost all of our traditional methods are either at the between level, Mm -hmm. if you do something Mm cross-sectionally, or they are in a panel kind of framework where they aggregate the between and within into some confounded mix. And you know how I think about it sometimes, Greg, is go back to the anxiety substance use example. Let's say on Monday afternoon, you have an anxiety score of five and I have an anxiety score of five. Mm -hmm. And let's say we both have an alcohol score of three. You and I are identical, Mm -hmm. right? But that numerical value is actually a Trojan horse. 
that contains in that five and in that three additional information. It has information about the within part and it has information about the between part. If we only have a single assessment of that, those are inextricably confounded. But if we take 21 assessments, you and I each have a five and you and I each have a three, we now have the ability to separate that five into say, ooh, Greg had a five when his overall average is a three. Mm -hmm. Patrick had a five where his overall average was a seven. We can now open that Trojan horse up and disaggregate those in that way. And for us, we're specifically in a longitudinal context. So we have the ability to unsmush these things. I think that was Lisa Hoffman's word, that the within and between gets smushed together, uh, which is exactly (laughs) what happens. And so in the longitudinal context, we do have the ability to start pulling these things apart. One of the questions that we'll likely unpack as we go along is it's not just relative to yourself, but it's also relative to yourself when we're talking about relative to yourself, or at least it can be that. I would say at the lower end of the food chain are the the models I wished I had bought stock in back in, in whatever, in 73 or whenever it might have been, the autoregressive cross-leg panel models. And as I said, those are the ones that people will draw on my board almost every time they come in and say, this is what I care about. And when they say, this is what I care about, that's where the therapy begins in your conversation. What do you mean? Do you mean that Patrick has a high anxiety level or do you mean that his anxiety level is high for Patrick? And there's that moment where you get the head sideways look as people are actually reconciling with what they think about it. And they will almost always come to the well, I mean high for that person. It's like, okay, good. Well, then there's this model does not <laughs> does not do that. And part of it comes from, I think, the fact that there's a covariance structure that we rely on very heavily. And this type of model just has that path analysis smell. And, and mean structures to models are so often swept under the carpet, in part because we teach path modeling in that way, typically. The mean structure is typically not of interest. In this type of model, the mean structure is absolutely critical, and failing to take that into account just dooms you to the smushing. Imagine you just have a very simple time one, time two assessment of the same construct. So let's say you have anxiety. Picture in your mind's eye a path model where you have time one as a rectangle and then a single-headed arrow to time two. Mm-hmm. All right, So that's the cornerstone of the autoregressive part of an autoregressive cross-leg. Where the autoregression is, is that you're regressing the later measure on the earlier measure. Mm -hmm. If you freely estimate that regression parameter and save out the residual, that's what's called residualized change. Mm -hmm. If you fix that regression coefficient to one and save out the residual, that's raw score change. Yes. Decades of throwing things at each other about raw versus residualized change distills down to a test of is beta equal to one or is beta not equal to one. Mm -hmm. I find that a fascinating starting point because then it just trickles downstream. All right. So now we have time one to time two to time three to time four. Mm -hmm. And then we have time one of anxiety predicting time two of substance use above and beyond time one of substance use and your eyes start to glaze over and you say, well, wait a minute. My theory says there's individual variability in trajectories of anxiety. There's individual variability in trajectories of substance use. And I'm interested to see how those two constructs travel together through time. This doesn't seem to be getting after that. Yeah, this whole line of conversation started even back in the analysis of covariance era. Oh, yeah. And in the autoregressive cross-leg panel model, we are allowing, typically, those relations to be estimated from one time to the next. And it's an opportunity for a lot of fascinating questions to be addressed as long as you get the for a part of it right. There's been decades of work written on this earlier on of David Kenny and David Ragosa and John Willett. We're just skimming on a ski across the surface <laughs> of a very deep lake 
some wonderful work out there that we would highly recommend. So Ellen Hamacher has been a leader in this field. She has a wonderful paper in Psych Methods from half a dozen years ago that really drilled down into some of these issues that are very nicely presented and thoughtful. There's some interesting stuff recently in the journal Organizational Research Methods. Yes. And it's led by Michael Zeifer and has a a number of people on that as co-authors as well that Mm -hmm. tackles these issues. There's a nice paper in Structural Equation Modeling from just a year or two ago by Usami Mm -hmm. that is looking at a broader framework for this. And so there's a lot of really good work out there that we would recommend examining. So we're just touching on this as we go by. But part of it is, is, Greg, I can give a very brief coming-of-age story myself, is way back in the day, I learned the autoregressive cross-leg, mm-hmm. and that was it, man. I was done. I had John Stuart Mill was happy. I had temporal precedence. <laughs> I looked at earlier anxiety predicting later substance use above and beyond earlier substance use, and then I had earlier substance use predicting later anxiety above and beyond earlier anxiety. What could possibly go wrong sure. with that? And I started thinking about theory, which Lori Chasson said she considered herself an intuitive statistician, which I just loved. And I think a lot of the field could benefit from this perspective. She didn't really know the depths of the equations and the mechanics, but mm-hmm. she would squint and say, that just doesn't seem right. Mm-hmm. And then me being a third-year grad student, of course, I gave my most patronizing, no, 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 see what's (laughs) happening is, and then 15 minutes later, I sit down, and I'm like, no, you're right, Mm. I have no freaking idea how that maps on. With Lori and her intellectual cattle prod moving me out into the theoretical realm, that's what led me eventually into the growth modeling and looking at smooth trajectories of change over time. Mm. And I got to tell you, I am just a cat with a laser pointer. That my entire life is the first laser pointer was the autoregressive and all of a sudden Lori moved it over in the corner and I shot over there Mm -hmm. and it was all about trajectories, all about growth modeling. Mm -hmm. I was at a conference. I had the opportunity to kind of shoot the bull with Jack McArdle, Mm -hmm. who was one of my heroes in the field. And he made a throwaway comment that said, if it doesn't have a sub T on it, if it's not subscripted by time, I'm not interested. Mm-hmm. And so learning what I did by being a third-year grad student patronizing Lori mm-hmm. is I thought, well, as a first-year assistant professor, I'll go ahead and patronize Jack McArdle. <laughs> and I was like, no, no, it's all about the growth trajectories. It's it's traveling <laughs> together through time and all of this. And he smiled and just walked away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and about two years later, I figured out what he meant, mm-hmm. which is... The fanciest growth model that we have is a trajectory for anxiety, a trajectory for alcohol use. So I am a male. I do not have an alcoholic parent. I am Caucasian. My anxiety slope is 0.5 and my alcohol slope is 0.3. When you look at growth modeling at the levels of the trajectories, it is a between-person effect. That's right. There is no time. There is no subscriptive T. And I saw Jack later on, and I pulled him aside, and I said, I finally understood what you meant. And he just smiled and walked away again. He did that a lot to me. (laughs) He would just smile and walk away. And you are... (laughs) (laughs) So the laser pointer led me over to the growth modeling. But then I started trying to say, all right, well, where is T? And then it turns out you can start building in some time-varying covariate effects, and then you can start lagging time-varying covariate effects. You know what it boiled down to, my coming-of-age thing is, this is a whiteboard problem. Mm -hmm. I can draw growth process. I can draw single-headed arrows. I can draw lagged effects, and they all start picking apart different aspects of that in by P data matrix. That's a very powerful thing to be able to do, to integrate information that occurs at different points in time. So I like the time-varying covariate growth model very, very much. It can do a lot of things for us. Um, (laughs) Not all the things that we want to do to try to understand what's going on at the different points in time. But I think it's a really nice 
let's say, addition to the things that we might put up on that particular whiteboard um, with pluses and minuses associated with it. I wrote a paper with Andrea Hussong a number of years ago just talking about statistical models and theoretical models in developmental psychopathology. And we puzzled through there about how having a growth model without the time-varying covariate, we referred to it as a launch model. So do your Ra's voice, all right? We need Ra's from Monster Inc. So go ahead and give me Ra's as a ticket counter. So I assume you'll be needing a senior ticket. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. But I walk up to Ra's Uh and I say, I am male. I am Caucasian. I have a non-alcoholic father. Both of my parents are employed and I have graduated from high school. And Roz punches those numbers into a ticket machine Mm -hmm. and pulls a crank and a ticket pops out and gives me my slope for depression and alcohol use. And Mm -hmm. I take my ticket and I say, thank you. Mm -hmm. And I walk away and the person up behind me comes and gets a ticket punched. And given your exogenous characteristics, you are issued a trajectory. There's nothing wrong with that, right? That's an important insight. All right, so I'm on this trajectory. But during this trajectory, maybe my father starts drinking. Maybe my parents get divorced. Maybe I make a friend who is a positive influence and wants to go to the library and study. Maybe I start smoking cigarettes. It's this push and pull model that as you go down that trajectory, you're getting poked and prodded and pulled and pushed by good things and bad things and neutral things. And those are the time-varying covariates. Those are Jack's time-linked influences that I think are fundamental to not just saying, well, earlier anxiety predicts later substance use and earlier substance use predicts later anxiety. What do you mean by that? I like that very much. And it's a very realistic scenario that people need to take into account. And and I, you know, I refer to it as little shocks to the system that occur. But the contextual elements around whatever that process is are things that are changing. And so the ability to introduce those, I think, is an extremely powerful thing. It assumes, of course, that those things themselves aren't governed by a process that you're interested in, right? You're letting each of them enter in at their own subscript T kind of way. It's entirely possible that you would like to have a theory associated with them as well. And then you're back to, do I need a T in there? Do I not need a T in there? And then the whiteboard just expands from that. A time-varying covariate model, you have unidirectional effects where you don't have a growth process for the time-varying covariate itself, but you can then erase some lines and draw a different set of lines. And so now you have a growth process for the time-varying covariate. But if you do just a bivariate growth model, well, now you've lost the temporal precedence. We as a field are fundamentally selfish. I don't want to have just a time lag or not have a time lag. So then you start getting into some of these hybrid models that different people have hypothesized over the years and trying to build in an autoregressive structure with the growth process. And my fingerprints have been on a couple of those and other people have Mm -hmm. done that as well. And those have met with varying degrees of success Some work better than others. But again, it's not like there's a right or wrong model. It depends on the characteristics of the data, the nature of the hypotheses that we're trying to evaluate, that different frameworks allow for different insights into the nature of how these repeated measures unfold over time. And that moves you then into some of these hybrid models. And I think that's where we are right now. Mm -hmm. Can we draw a model that gives us both some insight into the between-person characteristics? Mm -hmm. So I'm still interested in Roz's ticket. Mm -hmm. I want to know that if you're of these set of characteristics, what is your developmental trajectory of substance use through adolescence? Mm -hmm. Are you starting higher, accelerating more rapidly, move into problem use earlier than other kids do? I want that. But at the same time, I want to know... On Monday afternoon, if you are more anxious than you usually are, Mm -hmm. are you going to drink Monday night more than you usually would? And so then we want to move to some hybrid model that allows us some degree of insight into that. 
Yeah, and I have to say, at the risk of saying something nice about you, I am actually a huge fan of the growth curve models with the structuring of residuals. Honestly, I think there's so much potential in structuring the residuals to capture these complementary processes that go on. And I hope that people take the opportunity to go and dig into those a little bit, because I think you get a lot of the best of both worlds. You get the process that's going on at a between level, the whatever growth process might be hard-coded into someone's DNA, as you say, the, the ticket that Roz handed you, but also how you are around that particular trajectory and how that relates over time. It's a very, very powerful model, and I love it. It's where <laughs> it's where a laser pointer is for me right now. And, and <laughs> Completely forgetting that it's like the fifth laser pointer that you've chased. (laughs) I appreciate the kind words on that. To me, I look at that structure and it's just another set of single-headed arrows. Sure. I admit, of the models of which I am currently aware, that one is most consistent with the kind of things I study and the way that I think about the unfolding of behavior over time. Now, consistent with my grousing early on about how I'm getting tired hearing how the emperor has no clothes, it's just another model. And indeed, the bivariate growth curve model is nested within the more complicated structured residuals. When people are yelling at me about, should you use it? Or is that not what you want to do? Is I kind of shrug and it's like, do a likelihood ratio test. Mm-hmm. See if there is an improvement in your ability to replicate the characteristics of the measures that you observed in your sample with or without those structured residuals. If there's an improvement in fit and it's consistent with theory, then that gives you some insight into the characteristics of the data. And if not, then those higher level structures aren't necessary in that particular model. Yeah, I like very much this way of thinking. I am not a put all your eggs in one theoretical basket kind of guy. I think that's almost arrogant to do so. I like the idea of here are a couple of models that I think really are theoretically eligible, and we can look at how they fit. We can make choices among these models. And it's even possible that at the end of the day, we're not left with just one model standing. There might be a couple things that are doing an okay job of explaining what's going on. I very much like to think as a model comparer rather than a, you know, planting your flag in one model and dying on that particular hill, which a lot of people seem to be doing. If I can make one confession, that is that I feel the hand on the laser pointer starting to move a tiny bit. And that is that I'm also becoming enamored of some of the latent change score models. They have Jack McArdle's fingerprints all over those. I see tremendous potential where you have really broken change down to the time-by-time kind of increments that are going on and seeing how all of these coalesce. Because I don't think like, oh, we need to look at things from that particular perspective. I think it's very much like what you have done throughout a lot of your work. And that is, well, what are the strengths of these different ways of looking at things? And is there a way to get the best of both worlds? So I think that there's probably something that will also allow for the hybrid of change score kinds of things, maybe that are operating at a residual level along with the more between process of growth models. So I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. It's a very, very exciting time. That's a really good point, as I think it is an exciting time. I, too, am fascinated by the latent change score models. I've never written on that. I've never used it myself, although I've delved quite deeply just in trying to understand it myself. Because it's a steep hill to climb, right? (laughs) It really is. Yeah, it is. (laughs) But once you get it, then you see it, right? It's like, remember those 3D posters that you had to stare at until you saw the dinosaur? And then I would just lie and say I saw something because I never could. Oh, my God, But I kind of feel like the latent change score model is like that, where you just stare at it and stare at it. And all of a sudden, it's like, I see the Tyrannosaurus Rex. (laughs) Jack had early development on that, Emilio Ferrer, Kevin Mm -hmm. Grimm has written some really nicely accessible papers on that. What I love about the latent change score is twofold. One is it's based on these same rectangles that are written 
in Sharpie on the board. Yep. You erase the TVC, you erase the bi-directional growth, you erase the alt model or the latent curve model with structured residuals, and you have those permanent rectangles on the board, and you just draw another path diagram. Mm -hmm. But what is fascinating about that to me is the latent change score offers a truly unique insight that these other models don't. In the structured residual model, you can ask, are you higher than you usually are on anxiety in the morning, and do you drink more than you usually do that evening? Mm -hmm. All right, so that relative standing. The latent change score model is fascinating, and it gets into what Jack has long advocated for, which are dynamics. What the question is among many, I mean, there's a lot you can do with the latent change score model, but the most complex version of that is, does your change in anxiety between morning and afternoon relate to your change in alcohol use between evening and next morning or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. It's that fundamental theoretical concept in developmental psychology, which is earlier change relates to later change. The traditional models don't capture that change. No. The latent change score, I think, wonderfully does. And so what it says is if you have bigger change between two time points on one construct, does that relate to how much you change on the next, not just relative standing? Now, one thing that is a God-given in all of modeling is you got to pay the reaper. Mm -hmm. There are things that you have to give up in terms of well, what does that underlying growth factor represent now? And what does it mean if I predict that underlying growth? Because it's not what it used to be. Mm -hmm. And it's also a wonderful way of modeling complex nonlinearities. Yeah. And Kevin has a really nice paper on that. But maybe that's not what I want to do. Yeah. You got to pay Roz somehow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta understand what you're doing here. I'm watching you, Wazowski. Always watching. So I'm glad you brought that up because that is another diagram that you can draw on the board that gives you access to some aspects of those relations at the expense of other insights. Right. So probably all of this conversation distills down to just some key things for people to be thinking about. And maybe we could just give some parting kernels of wisdom around this space. What do you think? How about just parting kernels? <laughs> I don't like the expectation that there's some utility to it. Yeah, well, it's wisdom for you. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much, everybody. Okay, so you start, old wise one. So my initial kernel of wisdom is the one that pervades everything, and it might be tiresome to say, but you shouldn't come in there and expect the models to sort out the bodies for you. You have to come in with an idea of what the heck you're doing, right? I get a lot of people in my office who really just want to throw all the spaghetti at the wall and see what is still on there. And I hate that approach. I say, no, 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 no. You have to go through and decide what are the processes that you hypothesize that are operating? What is theory? What are the mechanisms here that you care about and don't care about? So one of the first issues for me in just about any conversation we could have is what is your theoretical framework? What does it allow for? What does it not allow for? You really need to use that to narrow the space here to identify what it is you care about. And I think Karl Popper referred to that as dance with who brung ya. <laughs> was that Popper? <laughs> yeah, I think that was Popper in his strong falsification uh -huh. and the letters between Thomas Kuhn and Popper. They talked a lot about dance with who brung ya. <laughs> There's a reason why we're doing this research. We have a question. We have a hypothesized process. We are interested in what are factors that are associated with children learning mathematics. What are risk factors for adolescents developing anxiety disorders? We have a theory that brought us to the table, brought us our sample, brought us our measures, and we need to stick with that mm -hmm. when we try to adjudicate from this whiteboard problem. 
Hmm. Is there a single-headed arrow there, or is there a two-headed arrow there? What would theory hypothesize? This pulls us, though, into the inductive-deductive loop that is so much fun about our day job, which is when you and I came up through the farm club, going from single-A to double-A to triple-A as we went through our training and research experience, we could get away by saying, well, I think earlier anxiety predicts later alcohol use. I could get away with that. I could write that in a paper and people would not give me static. Mm -hmm. But now, when we think about the statistical models that we have available to us, that's no longer acceptable. And we can use that circularity in saying, all right, I have this way of looking at a direct effect, an indirect effect, a residual effect, a latent change effect. How can I fine-tune my theoretical predictions to better hypothesize how I believe these co-developmental processes unfold over time. I could not agree more as we've got a compass in our theory and we can't be completely guided by where does that flag fly Mm -hmm. in a respective hill of that model over all other models. What do you expect? What is most consistent with what you believe? Okay, so then do you have a kernel of wisdom that builds on that? Do not lick a hot burner. (laughs) That is wisdom from me. I would recommend two, three, four times. You won't do it a fifth time. Uh That's really helpful. Thanks, Patrick. (laughs) (laughs) We have to balance our theoretical model with the characteristics of the simplifications that we impose on our data system in that we can't just blindly stick to theory if that theoretical model leads to an inappropriate fit Mm -hmm. of our observed data to the structure that we believe to exist. I think we all need to pull down our flags that are stuck in our respective hills and to truly embrace a model comparison approach. A model, by definition, is a simplification of a more complex system. Different models impose different kinds of simplifications. How can we, in a principled way, compare and contrast a set of these and try to adjudicate between some models that are more consistent with theory and less consistent from those models that better characterize the data that we observed from those that don't. So there's a winner, or at least a couple of winners at the end of this whole thing, yeah? So you and I both are raising children in a time of everyone's a winner. (laughs) And as you pointed out, they make 30th place ribbons. I think we have a couple, Uh uh-huh. But there's the funny thing that my wife doesn't let me point out anymore when we're at these competitions for Mm -hmm. children's events, which is everybody's a winner, but somebody still came in first. Mm -hmm. So how do you adjudicate a more winner Mm -hmm. from a field of winners? Mm -hmm. So yeah, everybody's going to get a baggie of orange slices at the end. To go with their ribbon, but there is still a model or some subset of models that are optimal for those data. They make the podium. That's right. The thing that I think sometimes gets lost in all of this, which will be maybe another kernel of wisdom that we share, and that is that people often don't think about this from a planning perspective, right? That I am almost always in the situation where someone comes in and says, we gathered these data. And we're up at the board drawing pictures. And I will tell you, I would much rather have had that conversation before they gathered data. Because if you narrow down the theoretical space, as in the first pearl of wisdom, and think about what some of the theoretical models that are even eligible to go into battle, you know, for the second one... It actually guides your hand in terms of the decisions you make with regard to design, with regard to data gathering. It might make you gather more data around particular time points if you think they're specific trajectories. It might allow you to go for longer periods without gathering data, depending on what's something that's relevant. And this, like so many other things, 
people come in expecting us to clean up on the back end or thinking that somehow these are all interchangeable in terms of the amount of work that's done analytically. The thing is that I might have had a better time discerning among these models if you had done a better job on the front end planning to have these models on the table in the first place. I don't know if you meant to come full circle to the opening of this, but you're back to time travel. With a bit of a mind flip. You're into the time slip. And nothing can ever be the same. I feel like one of the biggest advantages of learning advanced quantitative methodology and statistical analysis is so that you know what to expect in the future. And so if you look at this whiteboard problem of an autoregressive cross lag versus a bivariate growth versus a time varying covariate versus an alt model versus an SR model versus a latent change score model, and you lay all of these out before you gather your data and you think about the measures and the sampling and the time and the density, right? That's a big thing we don't think a lot about are the density of the measures. And I think a fascinating area of research right now is that interstitial region between the classic panel design where there are five repeated assessments Mm -hmm. and the classic time series where you have 500 repeated assessments is as we move more and more into the intensive longitudinal designs, the diary data that you maybe have 20 or 30 repeated observations on 100 people. These are becoming more and more common. These, I think, are fascinating areas for future work is knowing that somebody is going to force you to draw out on the whiteboard what your model is, is getting your time machine and think about, well, what are the different kinds of data Mm -hmm. that I can gather and have that will allow me to adjudicate among these better than if I just have five time points on everybody. Yes, exactly. And on top of just simply thinking about a future study, do I want to take eight items for five repeated assessments or 10 repeated assessments? Do I want to do a planned missing where I get five from everybody but 10 in the aggregate? I think about future studies using my current lens. Well, what measured variable? What items am I going to use? How am I going to do this on Qualtrics? I think we're at a time where we can take a step back and think about how we're gathering these data in the first place. We do what our advisors did and our students do what we do. And it's just that notion of let's push the limits a bit. Is there a way to approach our science that really is radically different from what we've done before, given everything that we've just discussed. And I do not have an answer for that. Mm -hmm. That's where I think this is an exciting time because everything we've talked about, Greg, have been the same damn rectangles Mm -hmm. written on the same damn whiteboard. Well, now think about what's something different than rectangles. I have no answer. I have no ideas. I don't even have an initial suggestion other than somebody who's younger and smarter than me should puzzle through that. And they will. And when it comes, we will go, wow, I couldn't have even thought of that back then. And it is so crazy cool. Actually, I would have said, you know, I had that idea a few years back and then I will write a paper that just represents what the young person does and put it in a more recognized journal and then I will claim it. So Uh, that's my plan. Uh It's worked thus far. (laughs) I have subcontracted Uh out my entire Uh life. Nicely played. Right. Well, I would like to think that this was for us maybe a first foray into longitudinal things and that there are some more opportunities for us to talk about this, maybe unpack some growth models specifically or some other things. But thank you very much for getting into the longitudinal space a little bit, the within-between problems a little bit. This has been great fun, and I think that there's lots of fodder for future episodes. With any luck, this has been a mildly amusing discussion for us, (laughs) and maybe we should just go out on that. All right. Well, thanks very much, Patrick. Thanks, everybody, for being with us. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Hey, Q-Potters. Welcome back. Don't forget to tell your friends to check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are sold. 
You can also follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at QuantitudePod, and visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, where you can leave us a text or voice message. And don't forget, there's actual Quantitude merchandise on Redbubble.com, where 100% of the proceeds go to DonorsChoose.org to help students in low-income schools get remote access during these challenging times. You have been listening to Quantitude, organized with the same level of forethought recently displayed by colleges and universities that are opening dorms and offering in-person instruction. Today's episode is brought to you by Cove Shield, a new R package that somehow protects you against COVID? By Zoom Backgrounds, allowing you to live in that 18th century farmhouse on the coast of Maine that you've always dreamed of. And by Equation Editor, providing you a way to occlude the fact that you don't really understand something yourself by making others think they don't understand it either. This is most definitely not NPR. Hi guys, just a quick update on Jiffy. The chip I put in his collar was damaged when he got blown off the Q-Pod helipad last May. I worked on it most of the summer, and I was just able to get a partial signal, but I'm not sure how reliable it is. I got some residual signature echoes from the Atlantic Ocean, from Brazil, Madagascar. I also tried to activate his homing pulse remotely, which would automatically record sound clips and transmit them home. I'll let you know if we pick up anything. Season 2 wouldn't be the same without him. Take care. Oh, and FYI, the chip I put in Patrick's neck at last year's Q-Pod holiday party, still working great. Thanks, guys.